Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. Thank you again for taking some time out of your schedule for us. You're welcome, Kyle. Good to be here. We have the Memorial of St. Ignatius of Loyola today. And before we get into his life, I understand you have a, a special prayer for us. Yes, I thought it would be good today to say his prayer of self-dedication. I think a lot of people will recognize this prayer. There's also a song of this prayer that people might be familiar with called Take, Lord, Receive. It's a beautiful prayer. So the prayer of self-dedication by St. Ignatius Loyola. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Take, O Lord, and receive my entire liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my whole will. All that I am and all that I possess, you have given me. I surrender it all to you to be disposed of according to your will. Give me only your love and your grace. With these, I will be rich enough and will desire nothing more. St. Ignatius Loyola, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This week, Bishop talks about the life of St. Ignatius of Loyola, and how a severe war injury led to his spiritual conversion, which ultimately led to the founding of the Jesuit order. Then Bishop connects the life of St. Ignatius to the upcoming Gospel reading, which tells the parable of the rich fool. Afterwards, it's on to listener-submitted questions on topics like whether or not Catholics have been saved, why we call priests father, and what we should do with blessed items that we no longer use. To submit your question, go to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. We mentioned that this is the feast of St. Ignatius of Loyola, and so always enjoy whenever you give us a little backstory on some of these saints. What do we know about St. Ignatius? You know, I was thinking today, uh, St. Ignatius of Loyola is one of my favorite saints. Of course, I say that, and I have so many favorite saints <laughs> yeah. that you're saying, how many favorite saints does the bishop have? Yeah. But he really is, and um, couldn't help thinking today about when... Uh, I was with the young people from our diocese at World Youth Day in Madrid. Mm -hmm. Back in 2011, we began our pilgrimage in Lourdes, which was just a great experience. But on our way to Madrid, we stopped at Loyola, and there's a sanctuary there, a big, big church, basically, built over the site of St. Ignatius's home, where, where he grew up, where he was baptized, really part of a castle huh. um, of Loyola. And... Um, you know, he was baptized with the name Inigo, which in Latin is Ignatius, or I should say Inigo. I have to pronounce it with the right accent, Inigo. And he was the youngest of 13 children. So it was great when we visited Loyola. I always wanted to get there. It's in the Basque region of, of Spain. And um, so, yeah, our young people really enjoyed it. It was just great to see, especially the room where where he recovered after being injured in battle. But but let me tell you a little bit, some highlights of his life. Mm -hmm. um, he had, uh, he was a very worldly young man, kind of vain, I would say. He was, um, you know, into all the material things. You know, he was a womanizer. He was a 
fancy, the way he dressed. He was very worldly. He wanted to become famous. He was very self-centered. So, and he uh, had a great love for military exercises because he thought, well, becoming that's how he'd be successful and become famous by being this great soldier. He was kind of uh, inspired by things like uh, El Cid and you know the stories of the knights and and their fame and their honor. Uh, so he joined the army at age 17. He uh, was involved in some different battles, especially with the French. But then there was a particular battle in the year 1521 when, uh, and I think he was around 18 maybe or a little after, he was gravely injured in a battle. He Actually, it was a cannonball that shattered his, his right leg. Mm -hmm. um, so he had to go back to the castle, his father's castle in Loyola. They didn't have anesthesia back then, so you can imagine. Oh, yeah. And he had various surgeries, and it was kind of primitive kinds of surgeries So to get his leg repaired. So it was a long process, a long recovery. Uh, he had to have the bone set and, and then broken and mm. you know it's just uh, awful you can yeah. imagine actually after all these operations his right leg which became shorter than the other one and for the rest of his life he mm -hmm. had a limp but that was the end of his military career mm -hmm. so it was really a shock to him so while he was recovering all these these months at his father's castle he had this spiritual conversion he wanted to read i, I mean he still had this idea of fame and fortune so he wanted to read some of the uh romantic heroes of the past etc but they didn't have any of those books but they had a life of christ and they had books of lives of different saints so that was all that was there these religious texts so he loved to read so he started reading these and one of them especially this uh this life of christ that he read really impacted him and he was really inspired he learned for example reading the the work on the life of christ the author proposed that the reader place themselves mentally into the story and he started doing that well that became part of we'll hear later about his spiritual exercises that he he composed but he learned that while he was recovering while he was in the castle recovering from that terrible injury so it was a period of of real desolation for him so even though he was getting he was very moved by the life of Christ, and but he also still had that temptation. He still was thinking he'd imagine like serving the king and falling in love with a royal, royal woman, whatever. Yes. But then he started learning how to uh, that when he thought of those things, when he dream daydream about that, it wasn't fulfilling, hmm. you know. But then when he would think about the life of Christ that he was reading or lives of the saints. Then he felt joy and peace. So that was the beginning of the whole, uh, how he started learning about discernment, which is so much a part of the Jesuit spiritual exercises. So, so he's learning about meditation. He's learning about discernment, all this while he was recovering. When he, uh, was able to walk again, he, he went to a Benedictine monastery in Montserrat, it's called Santa Maria de Montserrat. Maybe some people, if they've traveled to Spain, that's a, I, I've never been there, I'd love to go there. But it was there that he really made his confession, that he did a good examination of conscience and all of his past sins. Uh, he even gave his clothes to the poor. Now he was such a fancy dresser before that. He hung his, his sword and his dagger 
at the altar of the Blessed Virgin Mary. So that's a key place in his life, Montserrat. Then from there, he went to Manresa, which was a town nearby, and he lived there for about a year. He begged for his food and all that. Um, he worked at a local hospital, and he spent a lot of time praying. And it was a cave near near Manresa. So Manresa is another important spot. He, he is living this ascetical life, pretty severe. He'd pray many, many hours a day. <laughs> then he made a pilgrimage to the Holy Land in 1523. He thought he'd stay there and settle there, uh, but he wasn't. He was only there a few weeks, and the Franciscans sent him back to Europe for some reason. He went back to Spain. He's 33 at this point. Goes to school, a free public grammar school, as a way to prepare to enter a university. So, for several years, he was at the University of Alcala in Spain. Studied theology. Studied Latin. After that, he was prepared enough to do further studies, university studies, so he went to the famous University of Paris, and he was there for over seven years. And by the way, this is the time of the Protestant Reformation, just so you realize there's a lot of turmoil at that time. But mm -hmm. uh, and, and anyhow, he, he had some companions while he was there, some fellow students, and there were six who were really important companions. One of them was Francis Xavier. Uh, the great missionary to Indian, uh, to India. Um, another one was Saint, who also became a saint, Peter Faber. They were like roommates there. They were close, became close friends, and that was really the beginning of the Jesuit order. They were later joined by Francis Borgia, who's also a saint, and all these were noblemen. Mm -hmm. You know, so he got his degree. He was forty-three years old. What they called a master's degree from the University of Paris, but it's really equivalent to a doctorate, but they called it a master's. And it was in 1539 then that he founded the Society of Jesus. We call them the Jesuits. Mm -hmm. uh, and the Pope, the next year in 1540, with the Pope Paul III, approved the order and Ignatius became the first superior general, the, what they call the father general. And then they started, you know, Ignatius sent his companions as missionaries around Europe and, and then further, you know, mm -hmm. to the Far East. And they started establishing schools and colleges and universities. They were great missionaries. Ignatius wrote the constitutions for the order. It had a very centralized organization. One of the key things besides taking vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, the Jesuits were required to take a vow of obedience to the Pope and to superiors in the hierarchy. Mm -hmm. They took as their motto, this was the main principle of St. Ignatius, ad maiorem dei gloriam, gloriam, for the greater glory of God. All for the greater glory of God. Mm -hmm. So, as you know, the Jesuit order grew and grew and became a powerful force during the Counter-Reformation, spread throughout Europe, but also to the Far East, to the Americas, and even today, the Jesuit order is really important. So many universities and colleges, missionaries, etc. St. Ignatius died in Rome in 1556 on this date, July 31st. His body was placed in a shrine and uh, in a small church there in Rome called Santa Maria della Strada, Our Lady of the Street. And then that church was, was torn down. And about, I don't know, 10 years later, they replaced it with the grand the great church of the Jesu, which still stands. And um, if you ever visit Rome, I recommend going to the church of the Jesu. St. Ignatius, it's a beautiful, 
Baroque church, and the body of St. Ignatius is under a, a, a great, beautiful side altar. And the other side altar on the other side of the church has the forearm of St. Francis Xavier hmm. with the hand and arm that baptized thousands of people. So that's the feast we celebrate today. Uh, it's wonderful to to remember the St. Ignatius and also all the great missionaries, all the great Jesuit saints like Francis Xavier and Francis Borgia and, and even the North American martyrs, St. Isaac Jogues and his companions. There's, mm. there's a lot of Jesuit saints. And of course, we now have a Jesuit pope as well. Pope mm. Francis is from the Jesuit order. Right. And then on Sunday, we have a parable of the rich fool as the gospel. I was kind of curious if that was intentionally matched up with his feast day or if it was kind of a coincidence. Yeah, it is. I mean, uh, it should be because that's what uh, Ignatius was. He was a, uh, he had that uh, vanity and that greed. Um, and that's what this gospel is all about, where if you recall, it's, it's in Luke chapter 12, where someone in the crowd asked uh, Jesus to tell his brother to share his inheritance with him. And that's where Jesus went on then to teach them to be on guard against all greed. Uh, and then he told the parable of the rich man who had a bountiful harvest. And this rich man wondered what he should do. He didn't have enough space for it all. And then he decided, well, I'll tear down my barns. I'll build larger ones. And he can store all his grain and everything. And then he said, after, after that, I can say to myself, you know, I have all these good things stored up for many years. Rest, eat, drink, be merry. And uh, God said to him, you fool, this night your life will be demanded of you. And the things you have prepared, to whom will they belong? Thus will it be for all who store up treasure for themselves, but are not rich in what matters to God. I think this does parallel Ignatius's life because that's how he was. He wanted riches. He wanted fame. He wanted fortune. But then he had that conversion after his injury, and he realized that these material things were not going to bring him real happiness. Mm. He had that conversion, and so I think it's a good lesson for us today. I mean, we can worry so much about our money or what we wear, you know, and all those things we can, can preoccupy us. And, but, you know, as happened to that rich man in the gospel— you know, he died that night, you know, what could he do with all that stuff he stored up? Nothing. Hmm. So we should view our earthly things from the perspective of eternity. That's, that's the message um, that we have to see what's our true treasure. Our true treasure is in heaven. Our true treasure is God. And that's what Ignatius of Loyola learned. And that's, you know, in his motto, Ad maiorum de gloriam, for the greater glory of God. I think that should be the motto for all of us, not just for the Jesuits. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Thank you for that reflection. Coming up, we'll talk about Lake Week for the seminarians and the meeting with Catholic school principals and more right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. What's the difference between Notre Dame Federal Credit Union and a bank? Well, banks are owned by investors looking to make a profit. 
Notre Dame FCU is different. We are a not-for-profit member-owned cooperative. Our mission is to help our members improve their lives by providing products and services that save them money. If we end up with too much money ourselves, we simply give it away to our members' favorite charities. Last year, over a million dollars. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. And this is, a lot of people might not know this, but it's Lake Week for the seminarians. Can you explain what Lake Week is and why this is important? Yeah, it's a week every year where our seminarians gather and they stay at the uh, the Knoll House, a house owned by the diocese on Lake Wawasee. And it used to be a chapel. Hmm. Um, and it has several rooms. We have so many seminarians now, they can't all sleep there, but most of them do. But they have a good week of fraternity together. They'll have daily mass and prayer. They'll have meals together. They'll go out on the lake in boats. They'll just have fun, too. Mm -hmm. So it's good. It builds the camaraderie, uh, especially since all our seminarians aren't at the same seminary. Most of them are at Mount St. Mary's, but we have some of our college seminarians. Well, our college seminarians are at Bishop Rute Seminary mm -hmm. in Indianapolis. So brings them together, plus those that I just accepted into the seminary so so they come and they get to know the other seminarians and the other seminarians get to know them the only ones who who aren't there are, are uh, the couple seminarians that we have in rome that aren't able to come home for the summer mm -hmm. um, or not allowed to after their second year of theology they're allowed to come home from rome but during that lake week it's just a time of of a fun relaxation fraternity and prayer together. So I always try to get there one day, have mass for the guys, have lunch together, spend a little bit of time with them. And I always look forward to that too. It's, it's kind of an informal way of just spending time with our seminarians. Sure. And did you have anything like this whenever you were in seminary? No, I mean, we would, well, you know what, when I was in the seminary, well, before I went to Rome, because I didn't get home except one summer during the time I was in theology. But when I was, those two years of college seminary, we had to live together the whole summer. So huh. we were, we were, and then we'd go out to parishes and do evangelization visits. We would, we were all like going door to door through, uh, through neighborhoods, huh. uh, basically spreading the faith, trying to uh, bring fallen away Catholics back to the church or, meeting unchurched people we'd invite them to consider the catholic church mm -hmm. so that's what we did together but we didn't have anything like the lake week do you think that was effective ministry yeah i think what we found is a lot of situations that we had to refer to the priest because you'd find people who weren't coming to church because they were in invalid marriages uh -huh. so we couldn't do anything about that we would just try sure. to uh, we'd let the priest know so he could follow up but i think it was worthwhile i think we did have people come back to practice of the faith and or people who joined our CIA as a result of our visits. Uh -huh. Have you ever asked seminarians to do that? Yeah, when I give them parish assignments for the summer, I always tell the pastors that I want them to do some evangelization, uh -huh. some home visits. Not like exclusively that, but yeah. at least spend some time doing that. All right, well, another thing that is coming up tomorrow, August 1st, the annual meeting of Catholic school principals in our diocese. Can 
you give us maybe a preview of what you might talk to them about? Well, you know what? I haven't really decided. I'm going to have to work on that homily, but okay. I'll have mass for them, and I'll definitely preach. It's the Feast of St. Alphonsus Liguori, so I'm sure I'll speak a bit about that. But I'll obviously talk to them about Catholic identity and mission of our schools. Mm-hmm. That they are, they are leaders in our schools, so they have a really important mission. I'll express to them my gratitude because it's not easy. Being a principal these days, it's pretty. It's it's a big big task. Mm-hmm. So I'll try to give them a, an encouraging word as they get ready for school to begin. But I want them to know how important their mission, their work, their vocation is for the whole evangelizing mission of the church. That the, our children and young people, whose education is being entrusted to them, are just. Uh, so important. I can only say thanks to them for leading the faculties and and uh, helping the students to grow in their uh, not just intellectual growth, but also their their spiritual growth in our Catholic schools. Mm-hmm. This is a time for them also to build community and kind of spend time with each other and get to know each other, so that when questions arise or hey, have you been through this yet? You know, kind of yeah. have that. Yeah, and there there are principal meetings throughout the year, and I think that happens. That interaction is really important because, you know, who else understands their position as much as fellow principals? It's like when I get together with bishops. Sure. You know, it's really helpful because we can share similar joys, but also similar challenges or 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 difficulties. So I think that happens, and they can learn from each other how others have handled particular situations that they may be struggling with. And of course, school's going to be starting up here soon. Any advice for students, teachers, faculty? Well, first of all, I think we start too early. I miss having a summer <laughs> vacation that goes till after Labor Day, but uh, there's nothing I can do about yeah. that. <laughs> um, but anyhow, it is what it is. Uh-huh. Um, I think summer vacations cut so short these days, although we do. It seems usually. like we're adding more breaks in throughout the year. Yeah, as well. yeah like spring break or fall October, break. Yeah, yeah. I kind of like the old days, though, when we had that full <laughs> summer from Memorial Day weekend to Labor Day weekend. Um, but anyhow, yeah, school's starting up soon. I think there's always kind of a sense of, of uh, excitement when school is starting up again. I'll be visiting a couple schools also to celebrate their opening masses. I forget which one, but I think St. Jude, Fort Wayne. So I enjoy visiting the schools myself, but it, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's, um, it's really a, after the refreshment of summer vacation, I think both teachers and principals and students, there there is some excitement coming back to school a lot, but I don't, yeah, maybe some kids are not, or faculty members are like me and think oh, summer vacation should should be longer. I don't, yeah. I don't know. <laughs> Anything you'd like to see our Catholic schools doing more of? Well, I am really proud of our Catholic schools. I mean, I think um, they're doing, you know, the prayer, the masses, mm-hmm. religion classes, service projects. You know, I think it depends on an individual school where there might be some that should be doing more service or or others that need to be more attentive to the spiritual life, but I think overall, I'm really, I'm really happy with uh, with our schools. Sure. All right. Well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask by going to redeemerradio.com/slash/ask-bishop. Feel free to call or text the Holy Cross College text line at two six zero four three six ninety five ninety eight. And coming up, we have some questions about calling priests father. Also, how to respond to the question: Are you saved? 
and more <laughs> on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman, here with our bishop who's offered to answer the questions that you've sent in for him. Our first question is, what is the difference between a memorial, a solemnity, and a feast day for saints? How do we know which saint is being remembered on a particular day? Well, I'll answer the last part of that. Just uh, you can look at the liturgical calendar Mm -hmm. to find out which saint is being honored. But remember, there's also different mysteries of Christ that are celebrated in the liturgical calendar. Mm -hmm. So it's not just about saints. Uh, For example, coming up August 6th, we'll celebrate the transfiguration of the Lord. That's a feast. Mm -hmm. So... um, so it's not just saints. There's also other events, et cetera, especially in the life of Christ that are celebrated in the liturgical calendar. The liturgical calendar has different ranks of feasts. The highest rank, which means the most solemn, the most important, are called solemnities. So, for example, Christmas is a solemnity. Easter is a solemnity. Every Sunday of the year is a solemnity. Mm-hmm. As far as saints, where we celebrate solemnity, just off the top of my head, there are some saints of, or some feasts of the Blessed Virgin Mary that are solemnities. Mm-hmm. There's the solemnity of the Immaculate Conception. There's the mm-hmm. solemnity of Mary, the Mother of God, on January 1st. Mm-hmm. There's the solemnity of the Assumption that comes up on August 15th. And we have the solemnity of St. Joseph on March 19th. So that's a saint that has a solemnity. Another one would be the solemnity of Saints Peter and Paul Mm -hmm. on June 29th. A solemnity is the highest rank. So if we have mass, mass on the uh, day of a solemnity, you would have the Gloria, you'd even have the Creed. It'd be like a Sunday. Okay. Okay. The second highest rank is what's called a feast. Okay. So it's a less than a solemnity, but more than a memorial. Mm-hmm. Now, we don't say the creed during Mass on a feast, but we do pray the Gloria on every feast. Hmm. So there are various feasts. I mentioned, uh, actually, I'm thinking is the transfiguration of the Lord might be a feast rather than a solemnity. I'd have to check that, but you have to look at the liturgical calendar and you Uh can find out. But there might be a particular, like when we celebrate uh, St. Mary Magdalene, it used to be a memorial, a lower classification. Mm -hmm. Now it's celebrated as a feast. Pope Francis decided to raise the celebration of St. Mary Magdalene to the rank of a feast because of her importance in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. The feast, for example, of the Nativity of St. John the Baptist. Mm-hmm. So it's it doesn't have, uh, I don't believe, the rank of solemnity, but it's more than a memorial okay. because of how great John the Baptist was in our faith, in our tradition. So I could give many other examples. I don't have a liturgical calendar in front of me, to, so I don't want to make too many mistakes about giving you examples of feasts. But, oh, I know, all the apostles. 
all, whenever we celebrate the feasts of any of the 12 apostles, those are feasts, okay. not just memorials. Except for Saints Peter and Paul, that's a solemnity okay. because of the importance of Peter and Paul. But, for example, I think in in August, I want to say August 24th, the Feast of St. Bartholomew, one of the 12 apostles. Mm -hmm. Or when we celebrate a couple of them, some of the Feasts of the Apostles are grouped like St. Philip and James. They're celebrated together. Simon and Jude are celebrated together. Okay. Those are feasts, not just memorials. Next would be memorials. So you have solemnity at the top, then feasts, then memorials. And there's two kinds of memorials. One is obligatory, and the other is optional. So if you look on a liturgical calendar, if it says obligatory memorial, that means the priest having mass that day has to celebrate the mass of that saint. Gotcha. If it says optional memorial, he can choose to celebrate it or not to celebrate okay. it. He could use just a regular weekday and not celebrate the feast. So there are certain more important saints, I guess you could say, where we have to celebrate them. The priest doesn't have a choice. So, for example, coming up in, in August, we have St. Maximilian Kolbe mm -hmm. on August 14th, the day before the Immaculate Conception. We also have, I believe, St. Ambrose coming up forget the date, and St. Dominic coming up. We have a lot of saints during August, and several of them are memorials that you have to celebrate. They're obligatory. Mm -hmm. But then there are also other ones that it's optional. So a priest checks to see and then can make the decision whether or not to celebrate those optional memorials. So anyhow, I hope that helps. Yeah. And there are also some there's a universal calendar, but there's also a calendar for the country and for the diocese. Okay. So there might be some additional saints, not on the universal calendar, but that we can celebrate in the United States. For example, December 9th is the optional memorial in the United States of St. Juan Diego. Mm -hmm. And we also in the United States have a couple obligatory memorials. St. Elizabeth Ann Seton okay. on January 4th and St. John Neumann on January 5th. They are obligatory memorials in the United States, but not on the universal calendar as far as I know. And the Feast of Our Lady of Guadalupe is more than a memorial in the United States. It is a feast. Okay. Not a solemnity, but a feast. So it's interesting to look at the different rankings. Now, if you look at our diocesan calendar, you might say, well, are there some saints that we observe in the Diocese of Fort Wayne, South Bend, that aren't on either the universal calendar or the national calendar? Mm -hmm. The answer to that is yes. Really? But I had to get the approval of the Vatican to put them on our diocesan calendar. One of them is Saint Mother Theodore Guerin. Right. Hers is a memorial in our diocese. Uh -huh. And also, Blessed Solanus Casey. Sure. Is a, I believe, an optional memorial in our diocese, only with the approval of the Holy See. Okay. So if there's an obscure saint that a priest has a particular dedication to, he, he couldn't offer that mass as a memorial to that saint. No. Okay. No. I mean, he couldn't mention that saint in his homily. Sure. But sure. it can't be, the, the, the prayers can't be used. Okay. And as far as a liturgical calendar, where's the best place to get one of those? Well, um, you can order it online. Um, there, are, Make sure it's a Catholic liturgical calendar. <laughs> we sell them in our 
diocesan bookstore, uh-huh. the um, Good Shepherd bookshop here in, in Fort Wayne. But one could also buy what's called an Ordo. That's a liturgical little book that uh, tells you what the readings are to be used, and it tells you if you're allowed to have a funeral on that day or allowed mm. to have a wedding. So priests all have an Ordo, but lay people could get that too. Okay. Yeah. Also, most parishes have parish calendars, and the parish calendars usually have listed the solemnities, feasts, mm-hmm. memorials, both optional and obligatory. I don't know if all parish calendars have them, but I think a lot of them do. Sure. Yeah, and they're usually free, sponsored by some local business or something right, like that. Right, right. All right, well, next question. Why do we call priests father? That's a good question because part of the role of the priest is to be a spiritual father. Addressing priests and bishops as father goes back pretty far. I'd say because we beget spiritual children through baptism. In baptizing, we beget adopted children of God. But even in our preaching of the word, that's a fatherly role. Mm -hmm. Celebration of the sacraments as instruments of God's grace. It nourishes people spiritually like a father takes care of of his children. So it's a it's a spiritual fatherhood. I saw Father Daniel Neeser shortly after the ordination mass and he told me, he said, I'm a dad. <laughs> it was this really neat moment where he was just so happy and celebratory like he is a whole flock of, of children right. now to yeah. to be responsible for. So it's beautiful. What does your family call you? Do they call you Bishop or do they? Oh, no, my family you? calls me Kevin or <laughs> Uncle Kevin. If it's, uh, you know, my first cousins all call me Kevin. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Someone sent in the following. A common question I get from non-Catholic Christians is whether or not I have been saved. What would be the best response slash explanation? I'd love to know, Kyle, what you would say <laughs> okay. if someone said to you, Kyle, have you been saved? What would you say? Well, I recently interviewed somebody who wrote a book called Salvation, What Every Catholic Needs to Know. And his response, this is, I'm stealing this, is I was saved at baptism. And then I forget exactly how he worded it, but it's still in process kind uh-huh. of a thing. That's like a pretty we're, good we're answer. We're still working on our salvation. We could yeah. potentially lose that. Right. And that's the difference between us and evangelicals and fundamentalists. Right. I think you can look at it objectively and say, we've all been saved by the blood of Christ who died for us all. Mm-hmm. That's not really the question. The question is, have we accepted the gift of salvation? Mm-hmm. And yes, by baptism, that's a sacrament of salvation. But we need to appropriate that gift into our lives. In other words, it's not enough to say, well, I accept Jesus as my personal Savior, and that's the end. Right. You know, as if that it's done, and therefore how we live isn't going to affect our ultimate end. Mm -hmm. That's very simplistic, and it really isn't scriptural. I mean, they may take a couple passages out of Scripture that might seem to suggest that, but it's not the totality of Scripture. There's much more in the Scriptures that talks about our working out of our salvation. So it is a free gift from the Lord. We need to respond to that gift. And that's a lifelong process. And as you just said, Kyle, there is the possibility for us 
to say no to that gift. We say no to that gift when we commit a mortal sin. Mm -hmm. So we can lose the gift of salvation. Jesus himself said, he who endures to the end will be saved. He who endures to the end will be saved. So we need to endure. We need to persevere. We need to live in this friendship with God, what we call the state of grace. And then we will go to heaven. Mm -hmm. But we're free to reject that friendship with God, to rebel against him. And that's the state of mortal sin. And one will go to hell in that situation. So in one sense, if you answer that question, are you saved in the sense that we're all redeemed by Christ's death on the cross? Yes. Mm -hmm. But our individual appropriation of what Christ provided is contingent on our response which is a lifelong thing. Jesus died once and for all. He's provided for our salvation, but there's a process by which this is applied to us as individuals. We can lose heaven just like Adam and Eve lost paradise. Mm. So now if you say, well, that means you're... um, You don't even have any confidence in salvation. That's not true. We can be confident because if we're living a good life, we're receiving the sacraments, et cetera, we can have confidence that, yeah, I believe I'm going to go to heaven by God's mercy, by God's grace. I'm living in his love. I'm living in friendship with Christ. But there's always the possibility that we could be deceiving ourselves that we think we're in a state of grace or that we're persevering when we're really not. Mm -hmm. So that's why we can say we don't have absolute, total, metaphysical certitude. Mm -hmm. In humility, we have to recognize, no, I don't have that. I can't be infallibly sure. I mean, God's the judge, you know? We can have confidence. We can have strong confidence, great confidence, that we're in the state of grace, but we don't have infallible certitude of our own salvation. So I hope that's helpful. Again, I could use so many examples from Scripture uh, that would go against that idea that once saved, always saved. You know, St. Paul himself talked about working out our own salvation with fear and trembling. So... Our salvation is something that needs to be worked out. You know, it's something that uh, you can say, for example, I'm being saved or I, you know, or I have the hope, the confidence that I will be saved. So we have this confidence, but our confidence is in the promises of Christ, but we don't have metaphysical or absolute certainty. All right. Well, you can ask your question by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop, which is also where you can listen to past episodes of this show. You can call or text the Holy Cross College text line 260-436-9598. And we have questions about declaring a person a saint, disposing of old scapulars, and more coming up right here on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.
Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I am Kyle Hyman, and Bishop is answering questions that you have submitted for him. One of our listeners asked, is heaven promised to us? Yes. I mean, heaven is promised to us, eternal life, but it's promised to those who who follow the Lord, who obey him, who who are faithful. Maybe a little bit... Uh, like I, the last question. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> About our salvation. And someone asked, when the Pope declares someone a saint, is that an act of infallibility? It's interesting. They, it's not a, an official teaching of the church that canonization is an act of infallibility. Hmm. It is something, though, that we consider theologically certain. If you look okay. at some of these important theologians, etc., just the very fact that the Pope, the Supreme Pontiff, makes the canonization, does a canonization, that's an irrevocable decision. And that person then is honored in the sacred liturgy. When you're thinking that the Pope is mandating in the canonization that, that this person be venerated in the church's liturgy, especially at Mass, which is our highest form of worship, it seems logical to me that the, to then say, well, there can't be an error about this. You know, mm-hmm. now does that mean the person canonized was perfect? No. What's would be infallible? I think is the fact that that the person's in heaven. I don't think it's infallible to say that the person lived a heroic life of virtue. I'm not sure that that would come under the scope of the. I mean, that's the judgment of the church. That's why they're being canonized a saint. But but uh, and I think that that's the case. That they lived a higher heroic life of virtue. That's why they were canonized. But I think the charism of infallibility would really encompass just that one part of it. That the person is in heaven. Okay. Hope that's not confusing. You know, it was. Um, I think it was St. Thomas Aquinas who who wrote a little bit about that, where he said that the honor that we show the saints is a certain profession of faith by which we believe in their glory. And it's to be piously believed, according to Thomas Aquinas, that even in this, the judgment of the church is not able to err. So that's why I say it's theologically certain. I mean, we have great theologian like like Thomas Aquinas saying that. So I trust that any man or woman that's been declared a saint, canonized a saint, is in fact in heaven okay. beyond doubt. So I believe it's an infallible declaration. And that wording, I think, is important that the church doesn't make saints. We're not... We're not causing them to be in heaven by saying this. We're just recognizing the fact that they are in heaven, that they are a saint. And one of the things besides studying their life and their virtues and that they were doctrinally correct and sound in their teachings, et cetera, that's all looked at. But also the requirement of miracles, Mm -hmm. I think, is another kind of confirmation that the person's in heaven. All right. Another question from a listener is, I have several scapulars that I don't wear anymore because they're old and have become tattered. How should I dispose of them? I'd suggest either burning them or burying them. I would not put it just with normal trash. Mm -hmm. And as far as burying it, does it matter where it's buried? I feel like it could eventually get dug up someday or is that a problem? That's not a problem. I mean, basically they'll just decompose into the earth, you know? Okay. I would not just bury it. 
like with a little bit of dirt over it, I'd, I'd get it in there, you know. There's no gui- there are no official guides on this, but I think since it was a blessed object, it should be disposed of in a dignified way. So that's why um, it shouldn't go with ordinary trash. Okay. It doesn't matter if it's blessed versus not blessed? I think so. I think I'm only talking about blessed items. Okay. If it's not blessed, it doesn't have that... Um, it's not really a holy object. Okay. But that would also go for rosaries and things like that. Correct. If it's been blessed, then it should either be burned or buried. Correct. Is there like a receptacle at our churches or a place that people can bring things that... Well, our blessed palms, they'll bring them sure, back to sure. be burned for ashes for Ash Wednesday. Uh, there might be parishes that do that. I'm not I'm not familiar with that okay. with them, though. All right. Well, thank you again for another great episode of Truth and Charity for answering our questions. Appreciate it. And could we get your Episcopal blessing before we go? You're welcome, Kyle. I'll be happy to. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now and forever. Our help is in the name of the Lord. Who made heaven and earth. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Join Bishop and Kyle next week as they talk about the Feast of the Transfiguration, Bishop's upcoming trip to Rome to visit with Pope Francis, and a new website launched by the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops that aims to educate people on the steps the Church is taking and has taken to confront the abuse crisis. If you have a question you'd like Bishop to answer, submit it at RedeemerRadio.com askbishop or download the Redeemer Radio app and select Ask Your Questions. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union.